And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, good morning, friends. It is with joy that I look out in the congregation and see a growing number of folks gathered with us in physical time and space, and we continue to celebrate with those of you who are worshiping with us digitally as we continue to live stream in this season. And before I continue, I just want to offer a quick word of thank you to to Megan Davis, one of our lay members here at Eastside, and to Troy Aragon Buchanan, our worship pastor and director who was up here leading our music just a minute ago. Um, Last Sunday, Troy preached, and I helped to lead the music, and the Sunday before that, Megan preached, and both of those allowed for myself and my family the opportunity to get away for a week and to, to spend some time together at the beach. So thank you to you all for allowing me to go away and feel a great sense of confidence and not have to worry because I know that that you all are in good hands. And that is really a a special thing about our church that that the the head pastor can leave for a week and feel good about those who are stepping in and stepping up in his or her absence. So thank you, friends. Well, if, if you have been with us over the last couple of weeks, then you know that in July we have instead of launching into a new and longer teaching series, we're taking a break from that and and, and looking at some of the lectionary texts that come up in July. We're in year B of the lectionary. And this morning I would like to preach from the gospel text, which in July of year B, the lectionary has us in John's gospel. And John's gospel is this this fascinating, robust uh, sort of depiction and illustration and accentuation at times of the life, the ministry, and the teachings of Jesus. And it's filled with this rich language and metaphor and symbolism throughout. And this morning's text is, is no stranger to any of that. So as you, as you listen, as you hear, listen to the words that are read. I realize that they've been translated into English but, 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 but listen to the words that have been chosen and, and, and hear the uniqueness of them. And then we're going to begin our time by, by kind of walking through this text together and then seeing maybe what it has to say to us in the world today. So with that, friends, for those in the room, as you're able in body or in spirit, I invite you now to stand for the reading of the Holy Gospel. For those who are with us digitally, again, I invite you to embrace a posture of receptivity as we lift up these ancient words of our sacred scripture from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they had seen the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and he, and he sat down there with his disciples Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. And then when Jesus looked up and he saw this large crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus said this to test Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. 
Philip answered him, six months' wages wouldn't even buy enough bread for each of these people to have a little bit. Then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so the people sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that they had done, they began to say, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we ask that your living dynamic spirit would indeed meet us in these moments, that you would meet these, these utterances, these offerings of communication, of, of, of words, that you would translate what we're doing in these moments, God, so that, that every person gathered, whether digitally or in person, would be able to receive from you, God, what they need. So God, as I preach, I ask that these words I have prepared might become your word for your people in this time. May you speak through them, and where necessary, God, speak in spite of me. I pray all this in the name of the Christ, and everyone said, amen. Friends, you may be seated. Well, I don't know about, about y'all, but if I were to place myself in Philip's position here, the, the first disciple that that we speak of in the text. Here Jesus is on top of this mountain. We're, we're told that all the 12 are up there with him. When Jesus, I guess, looks up and can see this massive crowd coming toward him, and he like elbows Philip to the side and says, hey, hey Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? Now, I don't know why he picks on Philip. Maybe there's some historical reason. Maybe Philip was from near that area. I, did, I didn't do enough of the back back research to figure that piece out. Maybe Philip was just sitting next to Jesus, which is probably the most likely. And Jesus, we're told in the, in the passage, wants to test him. And I don't want us to get too hung up on testing here because I think we think of testing in a really negative light. But remember, this is, this is a rabbi and these are Jesus' students. So just like I will occasionally ask my children certain kinds of questions because I'm very curious how they will answer I think maybe Jesus is curious what Philip will say to him. So he tests him and says, where, where would we buy bread for all these people? And Philip, maybe being a bit of the anxious type, does not actually respond to the question that is posed to him. If you notice in the reading, Philip responds by saying, 
This would cost six months of wages just to give everybody a little bit. That's his response. But Jesus didn't ask how much it would cost, did he? He asked, where are we going to find it? It's kind of a fascinating little movement within the two of them. Regardless, I still feel kind of bad for Philip to be sort of put on the spot and to be asked this challenging question, frankly. I mean, I don't know how I would have said it differently. A mass of what we're told are 5,000 men, and that doesn't count women and children, so it would have been many more people than that, have gathered around the Christ because apparently the, the news of his healing ministry has, has worked its way out into the countryside, and people are coming, most likely bringing their sick, their needy, their loved ones who need medicine, who need help, who need healing to him. And Jesus looks up and he sees a hungry crowd. Which I also think is interesting because when I look at a huge crowd, my first question is not like, so where's the food truck? <laughs> but that's apparently what Jesus thinks of when he sees. He looks up and he's, he's thinking as like host. He's thinking as like the one who it's his responsibility to make sure all of these people get fed, even though he didn't invite any of them to come out into the middle of nowhere to, to hear him speak or to be healed by him. They just showed up because they heard that he was there. Yet the Christ still takes on this kind of responsibility that we can see Philip not wanting to take on and almost deflecting the question back, saying, Oh, no, 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 you don't, Jesus. Don't put that on me. Don't ask me how we're going to feed 5,000 men and then additional women and children. That's not even a fair question. But it's the question that Jesus asks at the outset. And then the second disciple comes in to view, and, and the second disciple essentially says, well, there, there is this child that has these five barley loaves and these two fish. Right after which the second disciple then says, which are like nothing. <laughs> it's just weird. It's like, why'd you bother saying anything at all then if you were just going to follow it up by essentially like shaming the poor child? And John doesn't tell us where the kid came from or how the kid came into the, the limelight of the text, my guess is that it became apparent to the crowds that the disciples and Jesus were having a conversation about bread and about food, and the kid maybe offered what he had to the group. That's at least how I have come to read it. But even the disciple who, who brings the child to the front immediately follows it up with, but there's not enough here to actually make a difference. Andrew was his name, by the way. So this whole text, you have Jesus assuming this posture of hospitality, even out in the wilderness on this mountain. And then John throws in, you see this hospitality furthered when John throws in this really weird bit of detail about midway through the passage where he says, and there was a large amount of grass. <laughs> really, John? Like, who cares? Like, 
a large amount of grass. And there was a large amount of grass. And he pairs this with the portion, of course, where Jesus tells the disciples to have everybody sit down. But it's still, like, why waste the ink? And one commentator makes a really interesting side note that I think is fascinating, and it's that John's gospel is the gospel that portrays Jesus as the good shepherd. And what does a good shepherd do but takes the masses of their sheep to green pastures with abundant amounts of grass? So maybe it's fitting for Jesus to have this flock of humans sit down in an abundant situation of grass to make this sitting experience a little more comfortable and to make this sort of sideline gesture toward the idea that Jesus is the good shepherd. Hospitality, the good shepherd. Jesus really, really cares for these people. And even though these people didn't come for food, they came for healing, Jesus is really interested in making sure that everybody gets fed which is fascinating. And I think the whole, the whole of this text is, is sort of meant in multiple levels for us to, to, to learn from the learning that's happening in it. And the first sort of layer of that learning is, is Philip is supposed to learn something, and then Andrew's supposed to learn something, and then we're supposed to learn something from them learning from something, right? And what is that? If Jesus is the good shepherd, why does that matter? Why is it important to see, to understand John's argument that Jesus should be understood or seen through this light? Why does it matter that there is a great deal of grass? I think that the really apparent but hard lesson that today's lection offers us actually to the follower of the Christ, is that Philip's immediate response to Jesus' question about how to deal with this is a question about scarcity. I mean, he's so bothered by the question that he doesn't even respond to it, but actually comes up with his own question in response that's even bigger. Jesus just wants to know where to buy the bread, but Philip says, who's paying for it? Who's paying for this, Jesus? Scarcity, it begets scarcity. But, but at the same time, as we're going to learn by the end, generosity begets generosity. In the coming kingdom of God, there, there somehow is just enough. Because this large crowd, by the end of the text, they do end up being fed by Jesus' wise leadership. We're told that Jesus, after the, they bring the, the loaves and the fish to him, and Andrew sort of then dismisses their smallness, takes them, and does what Jesus does at the front end of a meal, whether it be just a regular meal or Passover, and he, he offers the bread up to God, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he starts to pass it out. And we're told that in that act of breaking it, of blessing it, of offering it, 
that the entirety of the masses are somehow fed. And that there's something about this child and their willingness, their capacity to, to offer what they had from which we're supposed to learn. And there's something about Jesus as the good shepherd and the way that the good shepherd sees the situation differently than a scarcity-driven disciple. Because the initial response of both Andrew and Philip is big crowd. That equals expensive, which equals nothing that we can really do to help in that front. In other words, both of Jesus' disciples that are mentioned, they're thinking very simply. They're thinking in binary terms, black and whites. They're thinking big and small. The crowd is big. We are small. Therefore, there's nothing we can do to help. They're thinking the fish. There's two of them, and there's five loaves of bread. Small, small amount of food, huge amount of people. Therefore, there's nothing here that can be done. They're dismissing doing anything, right, because of the magnitude that they're perceiving. They're dismissing doing anything at all for anyone because, they're in, because of the magnitude that they are seeing. How often do we do this in our own lives as we look at the world around us and follow our news feeds from climate change to issues of economic injustice or racism to fill in the blank to, to the wildfires out west. We, we see the magnitude and we shrink back and, and, and we kind of like do what Philip and Andrew do and we put that in a category of like, that's outside of my capacity to do anything. Right? We're all guilty of it to some extent. But I think a text like this one pushes back and it says, but wait, the star of the story really is this child who's naive enough to offer their gifts anyway. Hasn't been ruined, right, by our cynicism and our negativity and our sort of ironic way of seeing things. This child doesn't get all that. All, all, all the child probably hears is, my parents have been talking about this guy who may be the Messiah, and he, he's asking for food, and I have some on hand, I'll offer it. It's beautiful in its naivety, and in its simplicity. And he's not doing math, or she, they're not doing math, and, and, and they're just offering it to God and saying, do with it as you will. Which I think is really interesting. And I think that John wants us to hear in 2021, as in the ancient church community who would have been exploring this text together in their ancient worship gatherings, this sort of dichotomy or this, this comparison between a, a sort of disposition of scarcity on the one hand and a disposition of generosity on the other and, and sort of using Jesus' disciples to, to kind of set up the, the whole thing. Because by the end of the text, somehow there does wind up being enough bread to go around. And here's where it gets interesting because some commentators will, will want to say that you know, this is a miracle story. This is a supernatural miracle story where Jesus is producing more bread from the, the, the offering given by the child. 
That is a very old standing interpretation of this text. And then there's another reading of this text where it's, it's yes, it's a miracle story, but, but where does the miracle sit? Is the miracle in the physical breaking of the bread that Jesus is doing, or is it in that when Jesus breaks the bread and offers it to the first row, the people in the second, third, and fourth can see he doesn't have any more bread to hand out. And this is all going to get awkward really fast. And that kid opened their basket, and we actually have baskets with us full of bread. And is the miracle that, that Jesus just produces more food up at the front and keeps handing it out and handing it out, or is the miracle that as Jesus hands out the last broken bread, the people begin to open their baskets and to share with their neighbor on their left and on their right, and it works its way all the way back to the completion of the entire crowd. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not averse to Jesus' capacity to make more bread. That's fine. The, the Christian tradition, we affirm that Jesus is the, the most potent, experience of of the divine that the world has ever known, and if God brought the world into existence, and I suppose the Christ could easily make more bread if that's what needed to happen. But I also think it's a really fascinating reading and a really fascinating question to ask, but what's harder? What's more challenging? Is it more challenging for the Messiah to, to create more bread on the spot Or is it more challenging to melt the hardened human hearts? I immediately thought of of the Exodus story for some reason this week as I was looking at this text, and I thought about Pharaoh, and, and that every time another plague would happen and another supernatural thing took place, the author goes out of their way to tell us that, and Pharaoh's heart got even harder. So every time a miracle would happen, every time the divine would act, the leader's heart got that much harder and harder and harder. So it's not always the case that the supernatural or the miraculous melt the hearts of human beings. Sometimes it makes us even more angry. It's fascinating. And and, And that's why I think it's interesting to think about this text, because maybe... If we ask the question, what's more challenging, is it for Jesus to, to, to miraculously make more bread? Or is it to transform the hearts of humans? Maybe it's the latter. Maybe it's actually harder to transform the hearts of humans than it is to just supernaturally conjure up more bread. If we look at Pharaoh, heck, if we look at our world today, because there's a real epidemic that's been happening on our planet, but that's not even speaking to the epidemic that, I, that I'm concerned about, and maybe you are too, that seems like human beings are just getting that much harder towards one another as the months roll forward. It seems like the hardness of the heart is, is sort of the antithesis to empathy and to our capacity to care at all about the other humans in our vicinity. Seems like new ways of this getting unveiled are happening all the time. And it is as concerning as it was 
with Pharaoh's remarkable hardening of, of, of his heart against the, the Hebrew people as their God was trying to upend the, the comfortable situation that Pharaoh had found himself in with the Hebrew people being enslaved and taking care of the, the labor fees for the national projects that Pharaoh wanted to accomplish. I think we live in a time today where it seems like we're kind of stepping into a new era of, of hardening against one another, of, of sort of like sitting in that mass of people with the Christ up, up there breaking the kid's bread, but, but like if Jesus were here today and there was a mass gathered to be healed and the same thing happened, you wonder, right? Would people just keep their baskets closed? It's kind of scary to think about and unsettling. Would we be moved by this? Would we be moved by a child offering the bread and the fish that they had? And would we be willing to offer of ourselves and of what we had? Or would we be gripped by scarcity? Would we be gripped by our hardness to one another? Would we be gripped by fear? Would we just be numb and apathetic to whatever's happening in front of us? Because we're so overstimulated, we're so worn out, we're so fill in the blank. Because the kid is remarkable in this passage. And However you want to interpret this text, whether you want to interpret it that Jesus took what the disciples saw as a meager, nothing offering, and Jesus used it to feed the whole crowd, that's fine. Go home with that interpretation. I'm great with that. If you want to interpret it in the other way, that Jesus puts his child on display and shows everyone the last loaf and everybody realizes what's happening, and it's in that moment that people's hearts begin to move and begin to change towards one another and towards the work of the Messiah. Walk out the door with that interpretation, because ultimately they both point us in the same direction, and that is away from scarcity and self-preservation and towards empathy and the loosening of the, the hardness of our hearts towards our fellow human beings. Because this sort of Pharaoh-like hardness towards any of the other humans in our world, it is antithetical to the gospel, and it's antithetical to the kingdom of God, and it's antithetical to the work of those who call themselves disciples of the Christ. And our calling as, as members of Eastside in, in this place, in this space, in our lives today is to be like that child and to allow the Christ to put us on display as he sees fit. Because... It's in that offering of, of a human willing to do something different that we humans can then be moved and changed and inspired. We're social creatures. And when we're around a whole bunch of people who are doubling down and hardening and hardening, it's that much easier for us to do the same thing. It's true. I mean, social psychologists will totally support this. And at the same time, if you surround yourself with a bunch of people who are loosening and loosening and opening their hands and becoming more and more generous, guess what happens and what, guess what gets easier for us to do as well? Because we're social creatures, it's how God made us, it's how we are. And part of this space is about us being social creatures with and for and upon one another and putting on display 
the way that Jesus is calling us to be. So friends, may we be a generous community. May we operate believing in the miraculous that our hearts, first and foremost, can be melted and transformed and, trans and moved to be broken and remade in the way of Christ, and that the same can be true for our world that desperately needs to have its heart broken and remade. May it be so in the name of God, the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.